You're listening to the Decidedly Podcast. The following conversation contains explicit language and topics of a mature nature. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. All right, so this, so having this discussion today, preparing for this podcast, I, I think was one of our more challenging, when you say Sanger was one of the more challenging preparatory work that we had to do because we had to figure out how, how are we going to talk to Dr. Celeste Holbrook, who's a, a sex educator, sex expert, but I, I wasn't really wanting to talk to her about sex. Yeah, well, you know, every, every, every boy just loves to chat about uh, sex with his dad, so... <laughs> There's nothing, I was really there's nothing more comfortable than yeah. that, right? It's so natural for us. <laughs> I was struggling coming up with questions to ask her that weren't sex questions, that were decision-making questions. So the conversation really took an interesting turn. You know, when she started talking about her, her faith-based framework on decision-making and how that changed her outlook on sex going from a purity culture starting point and then getting married and having, as she says, penetrative sex for the first time on her wedding night and, and having that not go the way she, she wanted, causing that decision point to move her into now where she is, is, you know, focusing on giving sex classes and being a sex expert. Yeah. This one, you know, it didn't seem like it on the face if we, when we, before we had a before we started recording that we'd get a lot of decision-making material out of this. But I think this was probably one of our best, um, our best conversations when it comes to really actually learning something about decision-making. Yeah, I, I agree. We talked so, about so much. We talked about sex. We talked about money. We talked about the Bible. Uh, we, we really covered it all and got a lot about a lot of knowledge on how to make better decisions yeah. because of it. So listen up to our discussion with Dr. Celeste Holbrook. What's the most popular class? Hmm. Um, bl- the blowjob class is pretty popular. Um, we have a, a like a, a basic blowjob class, and we teach all of them online now, so that makes it even easier. So you can just like uh-huh. show up. What's the age? Uh, you know, that's a good question. As far as when we were in the in-house classes, I would say twenty-five to fifty-ish range. A big, a big range. Typically, more people in longer-term relationships. I would say for a lot of the classes, maybe BDSM kink class gets a little lower, lower age range. But um, yeah, it's a pretty large range. I would think the BDSM class would be mostly couples, as opposed to as you said mm-hmm. in that class, uh, the blowjob class. Some about half people are single. Mm-hmm. I would think the uh, BDSM would be mostly couples. Probably so, or people who are partnered but watching on their own. Yeah. What's the biggest issue you deal with in the BDSM class? Hmm. I, I have a sense of what the blowjob class is about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you covering in BDSM class? Yeah. So the BDSM class is a basics class, and so it really is learning the basics of, um, you know, bondage, submission, dominance, sadomasochism. And so a lot of people, I think, attend the class thinking like, you know, we're going to get the whips and chains and the floggers out and I'm going to tell you exactly how to do this. And although we do talk about that some, like there's a lot of groundwork that you have to lay before you can um, consensually uh, restrain somebody or consensually um, inflict wanted pain. Right. There's sure. a lot that you have to know, including safe words, including um, what we call rack is risk aware consensual kink. So knowing um, what the risks are, for example, it's not just there's a risk of being hurt. It is there's a risk of being embarrassed or there's a risk that I don't actually like this or there's a risk that um, I like it for a time and then I don't like it. So you have to really know all of the risks before you go into a kink or BDSM situation. So there's a lot of groundwork to lay, like understanding your safe word, understanding the risk. What about aftercare? What if somebody's like, I'm tapping out my safe words giraffe. I'm out. I don't want this anymore. What happens then? Like, do we, do I want to be close to you? Do we want to be separate? Do we like end sex altogether? Do we go take a shower? Like, Having all of those things in place is really important to having a successful BDSM or dominance experience or sub experience. And I think that's what people don't maybe 
think about going into a BDSM class. Like we're just yeah. going to talk about all the wild things. What, is is there a risk in that that you know, as you say, that there's this novel experiences increase sexual arousal? Is there a risk that you start going down the rabbit hole that you're like, okay, I've tried this, and now I need to do something more aggressive or more dangerous or novel, as you said, because the the end game, I, I guess, potentially could be physical harm. Is there a risk that somebody gets too far down that road? Sure, there's always risk, especially, well, because novelty is vulnerable. I'm being vulnerable and asking for something new that I want in sex. I'm being vulnerable and asking for something different in sex. So vulnerability always comes with an element of risk. Um, and so that's why we lay it out kind of early. Like, what are we, what are we going to do? What are we going to not do? What are my hard limits? Like, uh, fuck no. And what are my soft limits? Like, I'm not into this right now, but you can ask me later. Mm -hmm. um, and so understanding that before helps with that. But what I hear you saying is, is there, is there like a rolling stone or rolling snowball that never ends? Um, and I would like to say that sexuality is something that you can explore novel in, in novelty for the rest of your life. And I hope that people do like, I, that's what I hope that people do is but with anything, somebody's going to take it too far. Well, I mean, that, my, my question, I really mean, some is, people weigh 500 pounds cause they just love cheeseburgers. I mean, people are going to go to the extreme. There's always gonna be somebody that went to the extreme. Well, my question is with something like that, do you find that people need an increasing degree of novelty or, uh, I guess pain or restraint, or whatever that follows to get the arousal that they're seeking. It's this dopamine hit, right? Response, In other words, sure. if, I, if I take a drug and I get a hit, maybe I need to take a little bit more of that drug the next time to get the same reaction because my baseline now is reset at a higher level. And that's, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, so I think it's, it's good to be aware that novelty does fuel arousal, but it's not the only thing. And sometimes our sexual, our, our sexual experiences are complex. So sometimes we want high levels of eroticism and wildness. And sometimes we want like intimacy and connection. Um, and actually knowing somebody or being seen or known by somebody is what fosters intimacy and connection. So um, moving away from sex always needs to be wild and swinging from the chandeliers or else I'm not getting that dopamine response and moving more towards sex is a complex thing that at sometimes I want one thing and sometimes I want another thing and sex is always a co-creation of an experience by two individual people who are constantly changing so novelty is actually kind of built in like I'm not the same person I was last week and so my sex life is probably not exactly the same as I was last week and so novelty is always built in and novelty is not the only fuel for arousal um, it can be some of these other things, connection and intimacy and um, being known. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How, do, how do you get people or encourage couples to have those open discussions? Because it would seem like that is a necessary factor. <clears throat> Unlike other experiences, you've, you've got to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a must where it, maybe it's preferred in other areas um, and you can kind of feel your way through it. No, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. We like all the sexual puns. It's okay. How do you how do you get couples to have those discussions? Yeah, first is normalizing that sex is a skill that you have to learn, like riding a bike, and you learn it and you learn it and you learn it again because we're always changing. So we're kind of sold this lie through porn um, and media in general that if you're attractive enough or if you are um, in love enough, that sex will be natural and easy. And in reality, sex is a biologically natural thing that we do, but it is not easy per se or um, organic. It is a skill like eating. Eating is natural too, but we kind of have to learn how to do it. Um, and so first of all, just level setting with couples, like sex is a skill. You're here because you want sex to get better and it's a skill that you have to work on. And then the next thing I always ask, and this is something that you can do with your partners or your listeners can do with your, your partners, is... I want you to write down my dream sexual experience would feel like because whatever it is that you want to feel, you will work to do the behaviors that help you feel that. Like any behavior we do, 
I want to go ride my bike because I want to feel that dopamine from exercise. Mm -hmm. I want to pet my dog because I want to feel calm, right? So any behavior we do is based on what we want to feel. So writing down in my dream sexual experience, I want to feel pleasure, eroticism, connection, intimacy, right? Write down what you want to feel and have your partner write down what they want to feel and then see some similarities and then start to talk about, okay, what behaviors can we do to help feel those things that we want to feel? And you'll find that there's a lot of similarities between what people want to feel, but the behaviors they want to do to get there are sometimes different. And that's where the co-creation and negotiation of sex begins. But starting with like similar feelings is a really great way for everybody to feel seen and known and satisfied in sex. How many of those feelings do you have people write down? As many as they want. Okay. It's yeah. not just, this is my one Talk, thing. Yeah. You boil it down to one, you sort of make a list. Yeah, make a list. Uh, and then just sort of compare, hey, we both wanted this in common. Yeah. Okay. So do you, do you find that people are coming to you because they have problems that they want to resolve or do you find that people primarily are coming to you because hey everything's fine but we want to get better like it, you know in other words uh you know i'm an athlete i want to get stronger and faster and better or i'm an athlete and i'm injured and i need to fix something what you see what i mean so restorative or improvement that's a really good question i think a little bit of both most of the couples that come to me are have a really strong foundation in their relationship like our relationship is good we know how to co-parent well we know how to talk we know how to deal with finances you know we can manage all of these other things but sex is like this elephant in the room that we can't seem to figure out we can't seem to get on the right page one has lower libido one has higher libido um we're just having trouble in this area so that's the majority of my couples are pretty strong relationally but sexually have just never learned the skill sets for sexual negotiation so I think that's a big part of my practice. Uh, a fairly other big part of my practice are more single people who want to establish their sexual ethic. Maybe they grew up in a conservative church system or um, something that's holding them back from getting the sex life that they want or being comfortable with their own body. Like this is typically women, not, not always, but typically women. So there's like the 80s and 90s, we were um, in the evangelical church, especially told that sex is for men and that women, uh, women should cover up their bodies because um, it, you know, men's, men's minds are dangerous and women's bodies are dangerous. And so women's bodies are in charge of men's arousal. It's a very dysfunctional type of way to tell people to wait until you're married to have sex. Um, and so when you grow up in that way, uh, you as a woman kind of believe that sex is not for you, that you, not only is sex not for you, but you are in charge of another person's arousal by your body. And that leads to pretty dysfunctional feelings about sex and your body. And so it's not just like, I don't feel great in my body or body image. It is deeper than that. Do you think that that has been throughout time? Or do you think that that was just a, a period of time that, that we just came through? It seems like it, that has changed a lot in the last 15 years or so. Yeah, I think um, women as objects or sexual objects has always been because men have always been in charge and, you know, men have historically been the ones who write the narrative on sex. Like if we think about even how we define sex as penis going into a vagina, probably defined by somebody who owned a penis because we know that most clitoris owners have their first and most of their orgasms through clitoral stimulation and not vaginal stimulation. So defining sex even as penis going into vagina, um, as defining pleasurable sex as penis going to vagina because we have 97% of our sex we have for pleasure, not for reproduction, um, is very male-centered. And so um, historically, yes, women have been on the lower end of being having sexual agency understanding their body, being encouraged to masturbate, things like that. Um, what do you think is changing that dynamic or that attitude? Because I've seen a shift and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm, I'm in my mid fifties. So I've, I've seen a, a marked shift in the, the dialogue around women's sexuality. Um, you know, I, I guess you could say in the seventies, there was this ownership yeah. women in control that came from uh, 
the, the sort of advent of the the pill mm-hmm. and but now we're seeing uh, more discussions about that around women seeking their own pleasure and being more open about the things that they're wanting mm-hmm. which I have not seen previously but what do you think is moving that first of all do you agree with that but second of all, what do you, if you do what do you, what do you think is is causing that shift yeah I do agree with that um you know with you know first and second wave feminism where we were understanding you know and advocating for ourselves more as women um there did become a sexual liberation in the 70s and the 60s um and anytime that (laughs) this is kind of getting big but anytime that you have a marginalized group who has more ownership of their own body we call this body liberation a it feels for the non-marginalized group, it feels like something is being taken away. And so, in fact, when the 60s and 70s free love movement happened and sexualization mm-hmm. became more appropriate or more embraced, that's actually when purity culture happened because we want to tie back down these sexual feelings of women or of people in general and control it more. Well, I mean, I think there can be some moral... And I'm not speaking religiously, societally, there's some benefits to say, kind of hold people in check on whether it's substance abuse or sexuality or, or other, other things, because I think it has some societal effects. If people are out there having uh, children or the, the consequences of that or what it does to marriages and relationships and families, if it's sort of left unchecked, you know, so I think there's probably some religious, you know, there will always be individuals in the church that misinterpret and go to the extreme on any sort of rule that's in place. And there are people in, in you know, whatever company you work for that, that take the rule handed down by upper level management as mm-hmm. gospel. We can never break this. If you do, you should get fired. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of individuals <clears throat> um, are responsible for the, the hardline stance against certain behaviors. Yeah. more so than God ever ever was whether whether or not you 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 know you and you can interpret that and say oh, I should wait till marriage and that could be healthy mm-hmm. right but we you can look upon someone who who did not do that in the same way as someone who who lied someone who 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 sinned in another way versus looking at them as unclean and unworthy of a relationship in the future but I think is what you're getting at yeah I think interpretation or or biblical interpretation and i am faith informed i consider myself christianish <laughs> at this point um i think interpretation all of biblical texts and we could go into that if you'd like but um is cultural like it's cultural uh-huh, interpretation sure. and when we when we think when we look at like galatians or corinthians and we talk about sexual immorality um like from this side or from where i sit I see a lot of immoral sex happening inside of marriages. So mm-hmm. all of those texts that talk about sexual immorality and being defined culturally as sex outside of marriage don't make sense to me to be defined that way. Immorality. Inside. What do you mean? What do you mean they're not defined? Say it again. So a lot of people use those texts to define uh, why people shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, okay. like because it says it's sexually immoral, okay. like sexual immorality is the term used, not sex outside of marriage in the Bible typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and from, I just feel like there can there should be a different definition of sexual immorality. Like when you're talking earlier about like there should be some some standards or some way to keep people in check. I totally agree um, that there should be you know, ways we say, like, what is immoral and what is not immoral. Like, we should have sex that's consensual. That's a moral... No, I, and I agree yeah. with that. But my, my point is that I, I think that there's some benefits other than just anecdotal. I think there's probably some some data showing that uh, both sex that's too early in somebody's development or, yeah. you know, those, those types of things can be damaging to the society if it's just sort of free free right. range, so to speak. You were talking about uh, how the how the church you, you think sort of pushed down the purity culture. You, you think that that were you you were saying that you, you felt like it was male driven. Uh, I think I was I was already sort of married when it sort of hit, yeah. so to speak. 
or unaware of it when it was hitting. Um, so I, I just being, I remember being aware that it was happening, mm-hmm. but it didn't affect me. So I don't, I don't know anything about the history of it, where it came from. Yeah. Well, we can, um, we can kind of trace its roots back down to the True Love Waits movement, where um, the uh, an evangelical church um, kind of got together and said, we need kind of this way to talk. We need to talk about sex, right? And so I, I think that the intent wasn't necessarily bad or wrong, um, but the impact was really tragic. So the intent was we need a, another way to talk about sex. We're going to talk about sex in within church systems. And here's what we're going to say. Don't have it. It's going to be way better if you wait until marriage, which I call the prosperity gospel of sex. Okay. And <laughs> you're welcome for that. And so they kind of made this whole marketing campaign called True Love Waits and did these whole um events where people would come and they would sign their pledge cards and I'm going to wait until marriage to have sex and things like that, but didn't give any actual sex education or, or other than just don't do it. Other than just don't do it. And also, you know, you need to cover your shoulders up because you don't want to be a stumbling block for your brothers in Christ. And, um, you know, that, that type of messaging, um, becomes really problematic because what happens is, and this is, a lot of my clientele are people who, like me, grew up in purity culture. Um, what happens is if you tell a woman that her arousal or, or her body is in charge for the arousal of her male partner, it is no wonder that she feels low libido as an adult because responsibility is the biggest killer of libido. And if you feel like your body is responsible for the pleasure of another person, um, you aren't going to want to have sex, you know? Um and so it was just really damaging a lot of fronts. Another example, which is kind of my story, I waited till I was married to have sex. I was 26 to have penetrative sex. And um, I got married in Austin in the morning because my daddy always said, if you get married in the morning and it doesn't work out, you haven't wasted the whole day. <laughs> so <laughs> I got married in the morning in Austin at the age of 26, went back to our hotel room and um, had penetrative sex for the first time. And it was terrible. It was awful. And I thought, what the hell? I thought I had waited and I thought I was supposed to have some beautiful, mm-hmm. amazing experience. And instead it was really painful and really um, psychologically hard. And I struggled for the whole first year of our marriage. Um, and eventually it, it remained painful throughout the first year. It remained painful throughout the whole first year because I didn't have any good sex education. I didn't know what was going on. And after a while, when your body has painful sex, after your while, your body just turns off arousal and it's like, well, I would think as a defense mechanism, if nothing else. Exactly. It's exactly right. And so because I wasn't given great sex education growing up and because I was told the prosperity gospel of sex, if you wait till marriage, it's just going to be great. You don't have to do anything else. Um, I, I just experienced all this resentment towards my partner. Well, my guess is you knew that was an abnormal experience at the time. I kind of did, but a lot of people just say like, oh, it kind of hurts the first time. It'll get better. Yeah. You need to get tough it out. Tough it out. It'll, it'll eventually get better. Like, but it wasn't, it was my body saying, you've been told your whole life that sex is dangerous and not to do it and to dampen down your arousal. Like, it's not going to switch once you sign that marriage certificate. Like we're still going to. So do, you, do you think that your involvement then in purity culture caused this psychological diminishment of your awareness of your sexual arousal that created the painful experience? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I had gotten shame-free, pleasure-focused sex education, I might still have waited, which is a beautiful choice. So there wasn't a medical issue going on? No. I went to the OB-GYN after a year, and he did a full examination, and he said, Celeste, I don't see anything physically wrong with you. I think you should probably just have a kid. And I said, that's not going <laughs> to <How> would- <laughs> That's not going to happen, buddy. How would that? <laughs> yeah. I can't even have sex at this point. I don't. Yeah. So that was actually the beginning of my career, talking about decisions. Um, I was like, I, there's gotta be some other way. I've got to figure this out. And what I really needed was a sex educator or somebody to be like, Hey, I see that you're struggling emotionally. I see that you're struggling physically. How did you resolve this issue? Well, I was already getting my PhD in health education. So I started studying sexuality. Um, and just, I, 
honestly, truth be told, I gave myself the education that I never had growing up. Like, oh, these are the things I need to feel more aroused or these are the things I think about that aren't true for me anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, that I need to let go of or messages from my past. Um, So I kind of deconstructed some of those messages about my body, about sex in general, and sex got better. I mean, it wasn't anything but reorganizing my thought systems around sex. What did you do to reorganize your thoughts? Um, A lot of sex education. So I started like studying and reading sex books and I was already in the process of getting a PhD in health behavior. And so I took what I knew about behavior change and applied sex to it Um, and slowly just figuring out like, oh, these are the this, these are the frameworks I need to walk through in order to get aroused for sex. And I know now that I need to be really aroused for sex before penetration happens so that it doesn't hurt and use a lubricant, like super easy, simple things that nobody ever taught me, um, is what I taught myself. And, um, eventually it got better. And I thought if I could do this for myself, there's probably other people out there struggling. I could probably help. So I would think it's one of the more challenging things to do. I think as as humans is is to check those beliefs because you're coming to that situation with a belief and the solution was to change that. Yes. Right. And so I think the challenge is as we, as we go into any sort of decision making Mm -hmm. is is that you're, you have a framework that you arrive at Mm. and for many people, they never realize that that framework is, is off. Mm -hmm. Right. So how did you recognize that that was the issue, that it was your framework in how you were approaching this issue? It wasn't, it wasn't a medical issue. It wasn't go have a baby issue. Um, there were some things you could do. You, you mentioned lube and so forth. Yeah. Um, but at the heart of it, it was how you felt about it. It was how you were approaching it mentally. How did you arrive at that? It actually took me a while. Eureka moments. Yeah. Um, it took me a while to understand that it was messaging instead mm-hmm. of just like I didn't know things. But when I started to study sexuality, I realized that I had a really limited view of sex. And so studying sex made me kind of open up my worldview like, oh, there's so much more going on here than, you know, penis and vagina for one. Um, And studying sex helped me kind of open my worldview a little bit. And then once my worldview was opened up, I thought, yeah, this, this idea over here that sex is only for marriage doesn't fit with my own sexual ethic anymore. Right. Um, That doesn't, that doesn't uh, empower me anymore even though i still was married married to the same amazing human being but um yeah it took me getting educated first and i think the power uh, of knowledge when i think about creating a sexual ethic i think about what we believe in our value systems sometimes informed by religion um what i know like sex education and what i feel like my intuition so when we're making our sexual choices i think it's good to check in with all of those my value system, my knowledge, and my intuition. Um, And when I looked at all of those, I realized that my value system was no longer working for me and I needed to take some things out of that basket and put some more things in my knowledge system. And my value system growing up was also telling me not to listen to my intuition. You know, you have sexual feelings, those are actually evil, right? Instead of like, you have sexual feelings? Yeah, that's normal. You're a normal 14-year-old girl. <laughs> right. Um, and so once I learned how to balance those things out a little bit better, um, my decision-making became more clear. I still use that decision-making to that, that, those three systems of my sexual ethic to make decisions about sex. You're weighing your, your knowledge, your value system, and then your intuition. intuition. And I would imagine, though, a lot of time your end goal would be able to get to a place with any sort of ethical code where those three things line up every time you have to make a decision, right? right? That would be, it, it would eventually become easy, but I would imagine when you're establishing an ethical code, that's not going to happen every time. Most of the time it's not ever going to happen. Um, and then eventually you work on it. So how do you get to a place when you arrived with new decisions and you're trying to weigh equally your knowledge, intuition, and values? How do you adjust that and go, okay, 
maybe you made a decision to to adjust your values. Uh, some people may and the knowledge and yeah, increase yeah. the knowledge. Yeah. But some people may not. They may choose to. I you could change your intuition. You could change your knowledge. You could change values. How do you approach that, or how do you guide people towards approaching that? Full permission to mess it up. Like exploration is a big part of sexuality yeah. that we don't encourage. We think we have to get it right every time. We think we have to get it perfect every time. And because of things like porn, a lot of times sex feels like a performance. Like, mm-hmm. like we just have to look and, and do these certain things or these certain acts. So it, it looks a certain way. So giving people the per- permission to, for it to be an exploration, like, yeah, you're, you're going to mess up. Like you're going to do things outside of your value system, maybe. And that defines your value system better. <laughs> you're going to do things that, um, that you don't know of that are outside of sex education. The one thing that I think that you can't actually change yourself is your intuition. I think that's like, gutted. I was going to ask you about that. Is yeah. that, how do you, yeah. how would you influence that? You can't, yeah. but intuition influences the other things. What, what do you think drives our intuition? Like, where does mm-hmm. that come from? If, if not from our values, it seems like the intuition is tied to that value system. Mm-hmm. Like very closely linked. Um, that's a really good question. I feel like our intuition could come from different sources and depending on how you believe, like I'm, I think my intuition comes part from maybe Holy Spirit or God or universe moving within me. Um, I think your Holy Spirit is culturally relevant. Like your intuition is, uh, like those gut feelings, right? Um, so it's hard to know, are you born with them? Are you, are they developed? Are mm-hmm. they natural? Are they, you know, nurtured? I think women are more in touch with that men generally do you find that why do you think that because i in my interactions with women i have we'll have somebody come into our office Mm -hmm. and repeatedly and all of the women get a creepy vibe and i don't get that creepy i'm like oh that you seem like like they feel like seem like a nice guy they're like oh that guy uh -uh, that guy's a creep yeah like oh i didn't get that I don't know if it's intuition or if if women tend to be sort of their radars up or their antennas are up, their defenses are up. They're they're uh, going to a woman needs to care more than the average man about being safe in those environments. Yeah, and and maybe that's it. And so I don't know if this is the same thing as intuition. Yeah, it's I, a, a part of intuition. It's an it's something. It's, it's something that's going on yeah. that wasn't going on with me. And I don't know if it's just me or all. Men, it, it is an intuition regarding something regarding safety yeah. so that yeah. it may not cross other areas yeah. if we think about two things one is that men are not encouraged to feel right men are not encouraged to express emotion or feeling and sometimes intuition looks like that like i feel okay. just what you're okay. saying yeah. i feel scared i feel unsafe um and then the other part is that women from birth are in more danger and so our biggest fear is getting hurt or violated and a man's biggest fear is getting embarrassed right right right. and so those two things combined like men not being allowed to feel and not having to worry about being unsafe we just cultivate a generations of women who feel are allowed to feel and have to be constantly on on alert and so that there you have that at least that part of sure. safety intuition. Yeah. So when when people come to you who have specifically been raised in this purity culture and and maybe they find oh it's, it's not really similar experience to you hey, not really uh working out in the way that I thought it was going to yeah um I would imagine there's a lot of different ways they could go with that they could choose to say oh well I'm no longer going to wait till marriage or I'm going to discourage people from doing that, or I'm just going to change my mindset and I'm going to continue to wait. I guess my point is they could make a decision on how to improve their life with with or without necessarily changing the initial decision, which was to wait. Um, how, what does that look like? Because the impact of that would be very different. So what I always say is that no other person should be telling you what to do in sex. Like this is something, not me, not a sexologist, Mm -hmm. not a pastor, not a parent. Like nobody really should be telling you what to do. 
but you should be able to get good information that helps you make your own healthy choices. And so what happens a lot of times, especially for single people that come to the practice, I say that first thing, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Like a lot of people really want like, tell me what to do. What does God want me to do? You know, what is the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't tell you what to do, but we can look at your, your ethic. Like let's fill out these three baskets and see what needs to what we need to explore more or how these things are impacting you so that you can make a confident decision on your own and that happens a lot people will come in like i'm waiting till marriage but it feels kind of right now right i don't like i want to explore masturbation or i want to explore things with my partner but maybe not sex like great let's see how that fits into your sexual ethic and maybe you come out the other side like yeah i still want to wait but I don't want to be beholden to this belief system that says I'm a shitty person if I don't. Yeah. You like the motivation is different now. I'm not motivated because I don't want to go to hell. I'm motivated because this is what I find beautiful about marriage and commitment. And this is why I want to wait. So it's like shifting that even though the behavior is is the same, maybe um, it's shifting why they're doing that behavior. So yeah, you focusing can now on the feel, positive outcome of that decision versus yeah. the negative outcome of yeah. choosing to violate that decision exactly it's just and so you can feel more comfortable you well, get really getting back to your your why like yeah. this is yeah. I, I may make the same decision yeah but i'm making it not because this entity or this person has told me to do this i'm doing it because i'm wanting to do it. Sure. I'm value it does <clears throat> it's doing totally uh, you know i i grew up in in the church as well so i'm familiar with the guilt that a lot of people live with and 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 talk about um, whether it's sex or anything else, any other behavior. And it's always been a little bit sad to me to think about how I, I think that is not what God intended for us to feel in any way. You know, there's a certain framework, live by these rules, live by these guidelines. But it's, it, I don't know that the focus is so you don't go to hell. That's not what God wanted. God wanted so you can go to heaven. So you can, so you can while you live on earth, be full of God's glory and recognize the beauty of life. So. It's not that I shouldn't lie because there's a consequence to me lying. It's if I lie, I will not be a trustworthy person. I won't be able to trust myself. I won't be able to be honest with myself, whether I go to hell or not. I'll live in hell here as a liar (laughs) and known as a liar. Or heaven here as a a connector, right? Like I think about what you're saying as like disconnect. Like people maybe call it sin, but I think disconnect. Like if we... Mm -hmm like have these value systems and we go outside of them we feel disconnected from each other from your higher power from whoever whomever it's interesting to me how different the experience is um men and women who are raised in the same culture of wait till marriage and they're both told the same thing which is you're going to hell if you don't do this you know that's a really simplification of the the message but that's the the worst way to interpret it i think I don't even know that that's always the message, but that's certainly the worst way that you could interpret that message is, oh, I guess they told me if I have sex, I'm going to hell. And and men come out of that with, with shame, but not in the same way. And women come out, or men come out with negative sexual experiences, but not, not nearly in the same way. You know, the, the pain is not there. Um, have you spoken with a lot of men and on, on how they've, come through that and what do they say yeah it's really interesting um i'm always (laughs) impressed maybe is not the right word but impressed maybe is the right word at the good men that come through my practice some people will say like men that are so you know out of control or compulsive or things like that um i don't i have good men that come through the practice and really want to do the right thing um, and what happens for them after purity culture a lot of times is they're kind of fed this lie that their sexuality is uncontrollable that it is yeah. this um, need that has to be you know fulfilled by a partner and um, there's a lot of shame for men that come out of purity culture around like porn use or masturbation or things like that and so it is impactful for them or like a lot of my clients will say like i feel kind of just bad even when i'm aroused or i feel like i don't want to um overset my balance with my partner so i don't even initiate sex you know 
And so embracing that your sexuality is your sexuality. It's okay to feel aroused. It's okay to want sex. It's okay to want sex more than your partner. That doesn't demonize you like you've kind of been taught that you are um, growing up in that in that world. So it is different than how women grow up, but it's still damaging. Mm-hmm. Definitely damaging. How do people decide to go work with you when they've come from a culture that told them to not even think about it in the first place? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seems like a big step. It is a big step for a lot of people. And I'm really tender about that and delicate about that because um, even in our first session when I'm asking like, how, you know, how is sex right now? Talk to me about sex right now. And like a lot of people can't say the words like, you know, when we make love, when we are intimate, mm-hmm. you know, um, no, talk to me about your penis. Talk to me about your clitoris. What's going on? You know, um, so a lot of my job is helping people feel comfortable. And once um, they do feel comfortable, then it's like a really safe space. And we've created a really, really safe space. But people come to me when they're at the end of the ropes. They don't know what else to do. Like sex is not working out. One partner wants more sex. One partner doesn't want sex at all. Um, or there's other things going on. And, you know, there's just there's not a lot of providers out there who work specifically with sexual issues. You have your OB-GYNs and you have your therapists, but like I feel this gap right in between an OB-GYN and a therapist where, you know, sex just isn't good. There's a big difference between sex um, not hurting and sex being pleasurable, you know? And there's a lot of people that live in that in between. Like sex is not doesn't hurt, but it's also not pleasurable. A lot of vulva owners or women live in that in-between space and so a lot of OBGYNs don't even ask like OBGYNs will ask you is sex painful but most OBGYNs in fact only about 13% of OBGYNs will ask is sex pleasurable like are you having fun like you should be having fun it should feel good at some level and there's just a whole lot of people who live in this middle space and that's kind of where I come in we get a lot of people who have been raised where they didn't talk about money yeah. growing up. They didn't know what their, you know, what the wage earner in the household earned. They didn't know how much money they had in the bank. Uh, they didn't know anything about the financial instruments. They just weren't taught. Mm-hmm. They didn't have those conversations. And so when they come to us, they are coming from that place. They're, they're coming from a purity culture. Yeah. Uh, financially. Where, right. where they just flat didn't talk about that stuff. And so it's it, it's not the same. No, exact, I totally but, agree. But it's getting people to have those conversations to open up. And we start with that framework to say, well, what do you want your money to do for you? Mm-hmm. You know, the same it's question totally you're asking. The same. Like, yeah. what do you want to be feeling? Right. Like, yeah. and then how do we use your money to serve you in that way? What are the behaviors we do with the money mm-hmm. to help you feel what you want to feel? It's totally the same. I think there's so many similarities between sex and money and food. There is. <laughs> well, there, there are, yeah. you know, and so we don't, you know, just like you wouldn't start a discussion with somebody with here are blowjob techniques. Correct. You're starting with what do you want sex to, to provide you? And, you know, I, so I started the same thing, you know, what do you want your money to provide i to love you. it you know it's the same type of thing we see it with a lot of older uh clients where they just you know the the man traditionally uh made money dealt with the money spent the money uh and so we'll have widows come in who don't know where the money is they don't know how the bills were paid they don't they don't understand this stuff and it's it's intimidating yeah that is yeah, interesting. it's interesting on the the other side of that too is now that you see more female um breadwinners in 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 the household uh there's a dynamic with men I think when we don't talk about money where I can see I don't see it explicitly but I see it in the way that these men will will sometimes try to overcompensate their their lack of control in the relationship with respect to money. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you know, all that money is in her IRA and we're here talking about, you know, the money that she's earning and the benefits of her job. And so they'll come in and like way strong arm it in, in do these you, weird do you ever have conversations where you're, you're talking with a couple and 
you'll explain a concept. And he'll turn to her. And he'll and turn to her it. and explain the concept that yeah. you just explained. Yeah. What that's do called, you mean, honey? Yeah, this is what he's saying. Yeah. yeah. Do you understand that? In, that's oh, called mansplaining. I yeah, I think that's a that's <laughs> a that's not necessarily unique to money. That's a bigger yeah. bigger thing about <laughs> men. Yeah, it's a it's a bigger thing about men. Like I remember growing up, like. You never taught me anything about cars, really. You might have taught me. Like, <laughs> I know nothing about cars. Exactly. I possibly it was all you. about the cattle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was about cows. Cattle, I could teach you. Yeah. yeah. It, so I, you know, maybe you taught me how to pump gas, and you taught me how to drive a stick shift, but I don't know how to work on cars, right? So, if anything goes wrong with my car, I just take it to the shop. Mm -hmm. And growing up in high school, I was really like self conscious about that, and so I, especially when I went and hung out with friends whose dads did teach them everything there was to know and they built their first car you know like they they knew everything they have a garage you know where they work on all this stuff and so i would pretend to know i would like pretend that i didn't i i would act like i knew something right and right. that's the worst thing to do is to like act like you know what someone's talking about because then you look like a fool times two right yeah, um, eventually you know kudos to the people that come and talk to you celeste that because it, it seems like, you know, when, when it comes to sexuality, there is that expectation that we should know. Yeah. You should know how to do this. Right. You should know how to do this thing. You should know. You should be comfortable with it. You shouldn't be asking for help. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I, obviously the people who are already in your office have gotten past that. Right. <laughs> right. On some level. How, would, yeah. how, would, how do you get, or how do you think we you could get people who wouldn't normally talk to you. Like, what are the, what's that breakthrough they would have to have to be able to get past that and go, oh, you know what, maybe I need help with this. Relationship. So you build relationships with your clients. I'm really good at making people feel comfortable. <laughs> um, um, sex is funny because most of the time, uh, if there's like a one partner who feels like they need help, the other partner's like, yes, please. If you need me to go, I'll show up. I'll sit in the chair. And then it ends up, oh, we're both learning things because sex is a co-created experience. Yeah. Even though you came in for your issue, like, oh, now this is all about us because sex is about us, not just one person. Um, but yeah, I think there's probably a level of discomfort, but I want to explore this relationship. Like I think sex and money have so many similarities are the way the uh, relationship people have to the yeah. concepts yeah, of sex because and it, money. it comes from your you know the framework you start with and yes. what you're taught what society teaches yes. you the uh the limited discussion you have in the open about it yeah. we don't ask people about their money yeah. in, in i'm constantly yeah society, you know? i'm constantly telling um my girlfriends to talk let, like let's talk about money because uh, I think women especially, and correct me if you think this is not true, I think women especially don't have conversations about money because either they think somebody else is handling it or they think that maybe that they're not, they shouldn't talk about money because they don't make as much as their partners possibly. I or... see a lot more women that rely on their, regardless of whether they're the breadwinner or not, like a lot of women rely on their husband to handle the finances versus the other way. Um, a lot of people... Uh, there are a lot of women that pay all the bills, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the same as like handling the money. And people get confused on that one. They're like, oh, well, you know, mom she handles, handles all the money. She handles all the she money. No, she bills. doesn't. She just has the auto. She has no idea where yeah. the money's invested or how it's mm -hmm. doing. And, and that's, that's, so I, I would agree that, yeah, there's, there's more women that are not discussing it. Um, because what's funny is men will actually talk a little bit about money. Um, in like kind of like locker room talk mm -hmm. uh so it sounds a lot like the way men talk about sex in <laughs> when they talk to their friend right. about it. like, well, a, perfor like also, a performance and, it's and to and brag it's, about it and it's all bs yeah, yeah. they're just <laughs> it yeah. is it's yeah. all bs because the the things that men talk about in the locker room about their investments are the stocks they bought that won yes they do not talk about yeah. their failures that's a really important point i think women would are because of their nature would have a healthier conversation about money because women are in general more comfortable being vulnerable and they're willing to say to their friends like i don't know i think i made a mistake like and seek advice from their friends uh, i i don't really think men seek advice from their friends and men are not comfortable in, in the same way like yeah. because 
most of us as men, we want to be, you know, I I don't want to show that I'm weak in front of my friend. And so if I'm asking for advice, it's like, you know, I'm number one, I've got the weakness of not knowing and not being competent as a man Um, or, or, or discussing it. Like, you know, I'm now, you know, that you have more money than me. Like, I don't like that, you know, in the same way that, you know, men talk about sex in, in the locker room um only about their wins only about their wins wins. right they're only telling you about the wins and by the way you know they're adding a few zeros to that stock winning you know a lot of similarities between money and sex for sure thank you so much for coming to talk how how can people find you yeah so you can find me at drcelestholbrook.com or the same on socials dr celeste holbrook i make really funny reels about sex and help you feel more comfortable about anything that's going on in your sex life. So give me a follow. We'll deal. What I got out of that discussion was when we look at decision-making, looking at the values, knowledge, and intuition framework for coming to a discussion or a decision rather, that was what I I took away. Yeah, balancing those three things. I, I, I really like that, you know, um, she talked about how she balances her knowledge, her tuition, and her values whenever she's faced with a decision. And I think it can be really tempting to rely exclusively on your intuition, exclusively uh-huh. on your values, or exclusively on your knowledge. It's really easy to not balance them at all. She made a conscious decision to increase knowledge. She was, she was struggling. She had an issue she was dealing with. She made a conscious decision to increase knowledge which caused her to reevaluate values and make a change and make a decision to move from a situation where she was really not being fulfilled to one where she actually just moved into a, a whole different career and is actually now helping a lot of people. So yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you had a great time and learned a thing or two from Dr. Celeste. I know I did. We're certainly going to have her back on because that we, we simply can't get to everything related to sex and money uh, in one hour. But she, she'll definitely be back, and I'm really excited for that. If you had a great time, if you learned something, if you want sex to not hurt in the future, give us a five-star review on iTunes. If you don't think we're five-star worthy, then I hope you never orgasm the rest of your life. <laughs> check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram. See you, suckas. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Decidedly Podcast. To be notified when new episodes are released, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, drop us a five-star review because it helps more people defeat bad decision-making right alongside you. For show notes, decision-making insights, more episodes, and links to resources mentioned in this episode, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com. If you'd like us to help you make a decision in your own life, drop us a note at decidedlypodcast.com slash make my decision for a chance to have your question featured in an upcoming episode. For more decision-making content, check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Decidedly Podcast. As always, thanks for listening. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.